Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 this morning as we continue our series in the gospel according to Matthew that we've entitled The King and His Kingdom. We're going to read this morning uh, the first 20 verses of Matthew 18, though we're not going to make it through all of them uh, in the sermon this morning, but just for context, we'll read the first 20 verses. Uh, Matthew 18 begins the fourth of five extended sermons preached by Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 10, we have what we entitled the Sermon on the Mission. In Matthew chapter 13, we had the Sermon on the Mystery of the Kingdom. And since I can't think of a title that begins with M, in Matthew 18, we have the Sermon on the Community of the Kingdom. Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and by extension to us, about what it looks like to be a part of His kingdom community within the church, how we are to relate to Him and to one another as we receive His grace and live life together. So having said that, let's read the first 20 verses of this great chapter, Matthew 18, 1-20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I 
among them. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning grateful that Your mercy is more. And though our sins are many, that in Christ You forgive us, that You you call us to Yourself, You graciously reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. It's our prayer this morning that You would make us the disciples that You desire us to be. That in our life together here as a church, that we would reflect all that Jesus teaches in this great chapter of Matthew 18. We pray this morning that as we ask the question, what is greatness? That You would remove all of the worldly attitudes we've taken to ourselves about what greatness truly is. And that You would replace those with greatness as defined by Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. You don't have to look hard to discover what our culture defines as greatness. There's no need to squint. You merely need to look up. It's as simple as seeing the moon in the night sky. You look up to see CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who have mastered the art of hard work and discipline, innovation, to maximize their earning potential. You look up to see the professional athlete who, having been gifted with a certain degree of athleticism, has trained tirelessly in order to be at the top of his or her game and on the covers of magazines. You look up to see celebrities who, through their beauty and charisma, whether we realize it or not, influence us to unwittingly make dozens of consumer decisions a week. We look up to see scholars at the top of their fields who, through rigorous study and intellect, have ascended the ladder of authority so that when they speak, we listen. If you want to know what the world defines as greatness, you merely need to look up. Money, power, and respect. Trouble is, none of those things will help you determine what greatness actually is. Because according to Jesus, here at the beginning of Matthew 18, if you'd like to truly observe greatness, you won't be able to do it by looking up. You'll have to look down. You have to look at a little child. I've had a song stuck in my head all week. I'm not going to sing it to you. I was telling somebody earlier this morning, I don't really mind if you're offended by what I say. I I don't want to offend you by how I say it. And if I sing, you'll be offended by how I say it. But of course, many of you will know the lyrics of the song. It goes simply like this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. It struck me as I was meditating on those words, and I was meditating on those words I learned in preschool, that the lines sort of almost loosely mirror our core values as a church. Jesus loves me. That's why we center ourselves on the gospel. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Where else would we turn but to the Bible? Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. So much of our health as a church is determined by strength found in weakness. 
There's those last two lines of the song that have stood out to me the most. Little ones to Him belong. And the reason for that is that Jesus Himself here, no less than three times in our text, refers to the little ones. Verse 6, these little ones who believe in Me. Verse 10, do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 14, it is not the will of the Father that one of these little ones should perish. Indeed, little ones to Him belong. And only little ones. So the question becomes very clearly, am I a little one? Have I become great as defined in the kingdom of heaven? And again, I say to you that greatness as defined by Jesus is completely at odds with what greatness is described as or demonstrated to be in our culture. I want to move through these first 14 verses of chapter 18 to give you three characteristics or three attributes of of greatness as Jesus defines them. And the first of them is this, greatness is humbling one's self like a little child. That's what greatness is, humbling one's self like a little child. Look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I just want to point out to you, and I'm not the first person to to say this, and I'm sure I won't be the last, that what Jesus is speaking of here in these verses is childlikeness, not childishness. The disciples and we ourselves need no training in being childish. The question in and of itself is the height of childishness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the best, Jesus? You've got your pick of 12. Maybe you could just sort of sort us all out, put us in, you know, ascending order of least to the greatest. There's three that I would think probably thought they stood out. They'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Certainly one of them is the greatest absolutely childish question. Now, the reason that I say childish is that I, I was thinking about children and the, this passage, and th- so I thought, I'm going to open my son's Jesus Storybook Bible, tremendous book, because I wanted to find out exactly how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes this incident of asking Jesus, who is the greatest? And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, she writes this, Jesus' friends were arguing. Who was the most important helper in God's kingdom? They wanted to know. I am, James said. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I'm the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, am too. Childish. It's not infrequent an infrequent occurrence to walk into a church and think, you know, I think they thought that Jesus meant childish, not childlike. Because as far as I can tell, everybody's vying for position. As far as I can tell, everybody's trying to be the best, the most important. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Who's the most important person on this board? Who's the most influential member of this church? who's got the power. But I want you to notice that Jesus won't play their game. 
but goes right to their heart. And calling to him a child, a child? This is the ancient Near East. Children are insignificant. They've got no money. They've got no power. And subsequently, they have no respect. He called a child to himself? You think about our day and age, children aren't really very significant in our culture either. We dote on them, rightly so. We love our children, but children can't vote. Children have very little influence. Children are just objectively humble. That's why we say they're just kids. So Jesus calls this young child to himself, and he says, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? This is like a bunch of college basketball players gathering for a, a tryout for the NBA and saying to the coach, who's the rookie of the year? And the coach looks at him and says, you might want to get into the league first. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Which one of us is the best in the kingdom? He says, are you sure you're in? Have you even entered? A little ahead of yourselves, boys. Because all this wrangling about who's the greatest demonstrates fairly clearly that you haven't understood the kingdom at all. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, in other words, you are not presently like little children, unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom. I've mentioned this once before. There's a doctor's office in Cranberry that we've taken Henry to. Many of you have been there. And you'll know that as you make your way into the office, there's the adult door and then there's a smaller door for children. And I love that. Picture a little child walking through, sort of strutting her stuff as she goes in for a doctor's visit. How ridiculous would it be for a parent to sort of get down on all fours and, and crawl through that door? It'd look silly, wouldn't it? Jesus says that's the door. That's the door. There is no other door. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like children. Now note how Jesus and this child interact with one another. Jesus tells this young boy or girl, come here. And the child, trusting that Jesus is worthy of their obedience, just comes there's trust and there's obedience. That is entry into the kingdom of heaven, trusting in Jesus and being obedient to the same. Jesus says, if you won't do that, you're not even in. Why are you worried about who's the greatest? You should be worried about entrance. And by the way, once you've entered, listen to what he says, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How could it be any other way? I mean, if you think about what the opposite of what Jesus is here commanding His disciples, think about what this does in the community of the kingdom, within the church of Jesus Christ, when people refuse to humble themselves like children and instead determine greatness by the world's standards. There's nothing but backbiting gossip vying for position, rivalry, jealousy, quarreling, envy, childishness. 
But in a community of the kingdom where everyone has humbled themselves like a little child, well, you're more important than me, aren't you? There's unity, there's joy, there's fellowship. How could it be any other way? Think about what Jesus has been talking to His disciples about. We've covered this the past couple of weeks. It bears repeating over and over and over again. Chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. See, Jesus, who occupies the highest place, willingly took the lowest place, that is death on a Roman cross, so that his, his followers could what? Argue about who's the most important? No. Jesus humbled Himself, according to Paul, Philippians 2, He humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross so that you and I might have the same mind as Christ, that we might be humble towards one another. If you want to know what true greatness is, you just look at a kid. That is the only way to relate to Jesus and then to one another in absolute humility. Greatness is humbling oneself like a child. But secondly, greatness is disposing of temptations to sin. Now, we not only live in a culture which says, look out for number one, you are number one. We live in a culture that says you must live within your own reality, whatever in the world that means. Everybody knows a coffee is $2 no matter who you are at Dunkin' Donuts, right? But live within your reality. The real world doesn't care about your reality. But do whatever you'd like. But here Jesus says true greatness is not, quote, living within your own reality. True greatness is disposing of temptation to sin. Now, follow me here. In verse 5, as Jesus says, brought a child forth to serve as an example for the disciples, all of the references that follow to this child give way to little ones being a metaphor for a believing man or woman. Look at this. Little ones who believe in me, verse 6. Those who have humbled themselves like children. Those who are in the kingdom. He says, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. When you welcome a believer in Jesus, it's as if you've welcomed Jesus himself. But the contrast here, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to sleep with the fishes than to continue on in that kind of behavior. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, wait a minute, Jesus. I can't cause anyone to sin. I am accountable and responsible for my own sin, but definitely not for hers. Let's not get tripped up on the language here. If you look at the footnotes in the ESV, all of the language that runs from 5 to 9 
revolves around the idea of stumbling or stumbling blocks. It's to trip someone up. It's to serve as a temptation to sin. Oh, and you and I can certainly tempt one another to sin. It happens when you stir up the gossip as soon as we're all together, tempting us all to join in. It happens when you stir up the negativity. Jesus says that we better not be so self-focused and self-centered that we don't care about whether or not we cause temptation to be placed in the path of one of these little ones. It would be better, Jesus says, to have a two-ton stone tied around your neck and thrown into the middle of the sea than to continue to serve as a temptation for another brother or sister. And while we're at it, Jesus says, not only are you to dispose of temptations to sin by way of your tempting another believer, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You better be sure that you deal radically with temptations to sin in your own life. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that temptations come. We live in a fallen world. It's, it's inevitable that we will be tempted to sin. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And look at what Jesus says in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now don't go home and start amputating. Jesus is using a metaphor. He's used it once before back in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, as he talks about lust, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is saying that temptation to sin must be met with the most radical measures. And if we can't get our minds around that, it's because we don't understand what sin is, and that's because we don't understand who God is. We fiddle around with stuff. Make jokes about sin. Sin is never funny. You can see our faces as we read the catechism question. What God commands must always be done. Always? Yes, always. What He forbids must never be done. Never? Yes, never. Our inability to keep the law does not relax its standards. Sin is a grievous evil. If the Son of God died for sin, it must be terrible. If the only solution is the Son of God in flesh, dying upon a Roman cross, sin must be horrible. Radical? You, know, you go to someone's house after Christmas and they say, you know, I just made too many cookies. You've got to get them out of the house. You've got to take them. Take them. Uh, if you leave them here, I'm going to eat them. Is that radical? Yes, it's radical. No, no one ever judges the person who does that. No, they're disciplined. There's a young man by the name of Cal Newport who's really sort of starting to influence young professionals because he's completely unplugged from social media. Why? So that he could be successful in his career to do deep work, as he calls it. It's a distraction, social media. I've got to cut it off. I've got to get rid of it. 
Now, if it's acceptable to be that kind of radical about our diets and our careers, and sin is so much more serious, Puritans are right, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If your hand or your foot is a temptation to sin, cut it off. If your eye is a temptation to sin, tear it out. It's a metaphor, it's hyperbole, but Jesus is saying be radical. Listen, it is not too much for some of us to cancel our Netflix account because we fritter away the hours every night binge-watching every silly show they produce. It is not radical for some of us to refuse to have the internet on our cell phones because we can't trust where we'll visit. It is not all that radical in the grand scheme of things to deal seriously with our social media accounts because it ends up just sort of stirring up the rumor mill as we look at people's lives. It's not that radical. It's just Christian discipleship, you see. Jesus dies for sin so that you and I might die to sin. Do you want to be great? You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, dispose of temptations to sin. They're, they're there, and they always will be there, but deal radically with them if and when you can. And thirdly, Jesus says, if you, if you really want to be great, if you want to know what greatness is in the kingdom of heaven, watch against despising other believers. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, watch against despising other believers. But I have to tell you, this is one of those areas of the Bible that is stunning. Completely upends our expectations. Because the description that Jesus gives of how not to despise other believers is what I think many of us would would think of as despising believers par excellence. It's the complete opposite of what we would come up with. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, one of these little ones who believe in me, another believer. Watch that you do not despise, that is, look down your nose or condemn, be judgmental of one of these little ones. Why? I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Let's not get too caught up in that. It simply means that they always have representation before the Father. If they're that important, if they're that important to the Father, then they must be that important to you and to me. What do you think, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? hundred sheep, ninety-nine are safe, one has gone astray. Here's the million-dollar question, billion-dollar question. Who is the sheep? Who's the sheep? According to the Gospel, according to Luke, Jesus tells this parable to talk about the salvation of a wandering sheep. 
But that's not how the parable is used here. No, the sheep is a little one. And what is a little one? A little one is someone who believes in Jesus. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about restoration. That's why immediately after in verse 15, Jesus gives us the grace of church discipline. He's saying, you want to know how to despise another believer within the community of the kingdom? Be completely indifferent as they wander and go astray, sinning grievously. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep. One of them has gone astray, begins to wander. Doesn't he leave the 99 who are safe and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is not the Father's will that any of us, through grievous sin, might show that we never belonged to Christ and perish. So what has this loving shepherd done? What mechanism has he placed within his church in order to keep us from wandering and going ultimately and eternally astray? He's given us one another. Do not perish or do not despise one of these little ones. How will you despise them? By allowing them to perish. It is judgmental and unloving to be indifferent when a brother or sister messes up in a terrible way. It is unloving and judgmental to refuse to say to a brother in Christ, you know, you cannot sleep with her. She is not your wife. It is unloving and judgmental not to say to a fellow believer, dear sister, I mean, the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol, but you're three sheets to the wind every time I call. It is judgmental and unloving not to say to a brother in Christ, Brother, it seems like you, you, you invent something new to complain about every week. That's despising one of these little ones. I can remember when I was in college. I was a brand new Christian and zealous as you can imagine. And I had a professor, Dr. Lloyd. I loved Dr. Lloyd. He was not a Christian. And he told a story once of a friend of his getting converted and another friend saying, you know, I don't really believe that you're converted because if you were converted, you would tell everybody about Jesus. Because if I really believed that people were going to hell, I would never stop preaching. And then I came across this YouTube video by a, a comedian, Penn Gillette. You'll know him from Penn and Teller. After a, one of his uh, performances, he was approached by a Christian man who tried to give him a Bible. And he reflected on this on YouTube. He says, I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This evangelize, share the gospel with people. I don't respect that at all. 
if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Challenging question. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. All right, fine. But what about when, when things go wrong within the church? That's a great question. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? It's also a good question to ask. How much do you have to despise the people in the pews around you to just sweep grievous sin under the rug? How much do you have to hate them? I wouldn't want to mix in. Christianity is private and personal. Where did we get that? I'll tell you where we didn't get that. We didn't get that from the New Testament. Love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, and on and on it goes. Christianity is a lot of things. Private and personal is not one of them. Jesus says, do not despise one of these little ones. And how will we refuse to despise other believers? Well, he gives us the motive all the way up to verse 14, but then he gives us the practice in verse 15. We're going to have to save that for next week because it's so vital for us as a community of faith that we understand what Jesus says here and that we practice it, and we, in fact, will practice it. Jesus' commands are not optional. But what does it mean to be great? Greatness means that I am as invested in your godliness as I am in my own. How else am I supposed to love my neighbor as myself? I pray that First Baptist Church would be great. Not great the way that the world accounts greatness, not believing our own newspaper clippings, not shiny and flashy and bright. My prayer for First Baptist is that we would be so great, so undeniably great, that in order to see us, people would have to look down. Worldly greatness within the church of Jesus Christ isn't merely unattractive. It's completely out of place. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones, and only little ones, to Him belong. They are weak but He is strong. Father, Lord, we pray 
for our own hearts and for the hearts of those around us, that we would be so great that when people look up, they wouldn't catch a glimpse of us, but that they would look down and see a group of little ones who belong to you and define greatness according to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.